And after taking last week to look at an amazing 2,600-year-old prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, we're back in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through his whole life, his works, his teachings, everything he said, everything he did in chronological order, in order that the events happened through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just to get the most complete view of Jesus we can so that we can know for ourselves firsthand what the Bible says about who Jesus was and what he taught and what he did. And today we're going to see some amazing things. We're going to see the incredible compassion of Jesus at work, and we're going to see how Jesus deals with doubt, something that we all wrestle with and something that traditionally the church has had a hard time dealing with. Maybe you've dealt with doubt before and you haven't even shared it because you've been nervous of how it's going to be perceived or received by those in your church. What's amazing is that the doubt we're going to see today is going to come from the person Jesus told us in the Bible was the greatest man who ever lived. That's who's going to be doubting in today's study. So let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 7, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 7, and we're going to begin in verse 11, picking up right where we left off last time. Matthew 7 verse 11, it says this, Now it happened the day after that he, Jesus, went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. So Jesus has a pre-existing appointment in this city of Nain. We don't know if it's just a Holy Spirit appointment that's leading him there, or he has a social engagement, but he's on his way to something else as he comes up to the city gates of Nain. Verse 12, and when he came near to the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. And I want to pause and make sure that we don't minimize or just gloss over the human reality and the human element of what's going on right here. Because no parent ever looks at their child and contemplates that one day they may have to bury them. No parent ever does that. It never crosses our minds because it seems so wrong, so unnatural. Carl Jung said it well. He said, the death of a child is like a period placed before the end of a sentence. It's a special kind of tragedy that cuts deep because it just seems so unnatural, so against the way things are meant to be. And this woman hasn't lost just one of her children. She's lost her only son. On top of that, she's a widow, so she's already buried her husband at some point in the past. And I'm sure there were many days when that son would hug his mom and say, it's you and me, mom. It's you and me. We're going to make it. And now that son is gone. And this would have been a financial tragedy for the mother as well, because in that culture, the sons would step up and financially provide for their mothers in the event of their father's death. In that culture, a woman was not allowed to own property and she wasn't allowed to work a paying job. So if she had lost her only son after already losing her husband, she had no means of income. She was facing either a life of poverty or even worse, a life of prostitution. That was the reality this widow would face when she was done bearing her only son. And it's interesting to note that Jesus is going to show up on the worst day of this woman's life. That's when Jesus is going to show up. And by the time he leaves, it will be the best day of that woman's life. And the only way many unbelievers become believers 
the only way many of us became believers was hitting rock bottom and finally hitting the place where the illusion was shattered that we were okay. And suddenly we were open to the reality that we were not God and we needed God desperately. And that's when Jesus shows up. It's not that he wasn't there before that. It's just that we weren't ready to receive him before that. Jesus approaches the city gates of Nain. In verse 13, it says, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. You might want to underline compassion on her. And said to her, do not weep. Jesus knew everything that I just mentioned about this widow and and the problems she was facing on a personal and a financial level. He knew it all, but he would have been thinking about something else. You see, Jesus already knew that his destiny was to face death on the cross. And that means he knew that the day was approaching when his mother, Mary, would be the one weeping over his dead body. I have no doubt that in the tears of the widow that day, Jesus saw very much the tears that would come from his own mother's eyes. Just a short time later, Jesus is intimately moved by the tragedy that this woman is facing because it hits very close to home for him. The compassion of Jesus... I don't even know how you begin to unpack his compassion because it's his compassion that led him to give up the glory of heaven for the fragile habitations of a human body to come to earth as God incarnate in human flesh. And it was the compassion of Jesus for you and I that led him to lay down his life on the cross. All of that was driven by his compassion. Write this down on your outlines. Compassion is the willingness to place yourself in another person's shoes and feel the emotional weight of their situation. It's a willingness to dive into their pain with them and feel the emotional weight of their situation. Greater compassion is to then act out of what you've learned by placing yourself in that person's shoes. Jesus was, he's the master of living in the moment, the absolute master. When he encounters this widow, he immediately, I guarantee you, stops thinking about the appointment he's going to. He is just there. He is in the moment, fully present. And when he encountered tragedy, he felt that tragedy. That's why the Bible describes him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus didn't walk by and say, I've I've got an appointment. I got to keep myself together for my appointment. So I can't step into that right now man of sorrows acquainted with grief because he immersed himself in the moment and he immersed himself in the suffering of others. He felt the the weight of their pain. He was willing to feel it. And he feels the weight of your pain. He feels the weight of my pain. He's familiar with your sorrow. He knows your grief. And he's acted out of compassion towards you. He offers you strength and peace and hope and comfort through his Holy Spirit, his presence that will never leave you, never forsake you. He doesn't say, toughen up, suck it up. He's there with you, in it, feeling it with you. He's compassionate towards you. One of the things about Jesus that is so interesting is that while he's described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he is also described as being anointed with the oil of gladness more than all of his peers. He's simultaneously described as the most joy-filled man that has ever walked the face of the earth. 
How does that dichotomy work out? How do those opposing ideas come together in one man? I would suggest that it all comes back to Jesus' relationship with his heavenly Father. We know that it was Jesus' custom to rise early in the morning and go to pray. And we see him after a day of tiring work or ministry or when he's overwhelmed, he withdraws away from everybody to spend time with his heavenly Father in prayer to talk to him. I believe that what Jesus is doing is he is essentially downloading everything that he's carrying, every emotional burden, the strain, the exhaustion, he's giving that all to his father in those moments. And what he receives back is comfort and peace and yes, even joy. That's why he's able to preach with honesty in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. He knows as a habit to go to his heavenly father and that's what he does. Additionally, Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit. One of the most prominent names that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit is the Comforter. He says, I'm sending you the Comforter, an ever-present source of comfort for every believer. Here's the secret, and this is on your outline. If you will allow the Holy Spirit to be your counselor, he will also be your Comforter. If you allow him to be your counselor, he will also be your comforter. I was on Facebook the other day, and they had one of those ads that pop up in your newsfeed, and I couldn't believe it. The ad was, download this app, talk to a professional listener right now. I was just floored. I was floored by a couple of things. The first thing I thought is, isn't a better question, why is there nobody in your life that you've invested in enough that will listen to you when you need someone to listen to you? And the other thing I thought is I kind of imagined the person on the other end basically eating Cheetos, reading from a script. Every 10 seconds they go, "Uh uh-huh, that's rough. Oh, I can't imagine what that must be like, (laughs) you know. There's this urgent need that we all have to be listened to. If you're not a good-looking dude and you want to get a good woman, learn how to be a good listener. It'll jump you like three points. If you're a four, you'll get a seven just by being a good listener. It's a true story. Or if you're a guy, maybe the best you can hope for is to learn how to pretend to be a good listener. That's an art too. We all have this desire and this need to be listened to, to download, to vent. I have friends who I will call sometime and they'll call me and they'll be like, I just need to vent. And that means I'm not looking for any feedback. I'm not looking for any advice. I just want to vent right now. And the key to living in joy and not just getting angry and bitter is allowing the Holy Spirit to be your counselor. You know, Jesus can take that. He already knows you're thinking it. You're not like, well, you know, I don't want to rant, you know, in front of God. Well, you're always in front of God, so you might as well just be honest about it. But if you will go to God with your feelings, with your frustrations, with your disappointment, with your emotional weight, and allow him to be your counselor, he will also be your comforter. That's how it works. That's the secret. Pour your heart out to God. And God, when he has to go above and beyond that even, he will. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he is betrayed, Bible says he is sweating drops of blood. The stress is that high. He's bursting veins in his forehead. The Bible says in Luke's gospel that the father sends an angel to comfort him. He sends an angel to comfort him. But God's word never tells us to avoid dealing with pain and suffering, sharing it with another person because it might weigh us down. You know, that's nowhere in the Bible. It doesn't say keep yourself pure of anybody else's emotions because you don't want to be bummed out. 
The Bible never says that. And how often do we fail to show compassion to be fully present in the moment with a person in pain because we're scared we're gonna be weighed down by their sorrow. Jesus is the model for us and he dove into their pain and their sorrow with him. He dove into it and guess what? He didn't become chronically depressed because of it. Because he would then share it with the Father. He would then share it with the Spirit and they would take that weight from him and replace it with peace and comfort and with joy. And when he needed an angel to comfort him, God made sure that he got one. That's a challenge for you and I. I was prepping this and I realized for myself, man, I need to get better at crying with people. I need to get better at laughing with people, at being in it with them, rather than being afraid that somehow that's going to taint me and weigh me down and mess with my vibe. You know, when one of my kids comes up to me and tells me something and, and they've got a huge smile on their face and they're talking so loud and so fast I can't even understand what they're saying, and when I figure it out, it's really pointless and stupid, but they're really excited about it. Can I tell you what I've learned to do? I've learned to reflect back to them the emotion that they're sharing with me because what I've realized is it has nothing to do with the specifics of the situation. Here's what my kid is doing. They're saying, Dad, will you come and share in my joy with me? Will you participate? Will you enter into it with me? I would like to invite you to share it with me. And I've learned as a dad as much as possible, I never want to turn that invitation down. I always want to accept it. Absolutely. I don't really understand what we're excited about, but it's awesome. I'm going to accept that invitation. And the same is true when my kids are devastated over something. Yes, sometimes, sometimes they do need to be told to toughen up. But sometimes they're devastated over something that might seem very silly to me. I'm thinking, it's a toy from McDonald's. Of course it was going to break. McDonald's did not get together and say, now guys, here's how we're gonna build this toy. This thing's gotta last forever. Quality is the number one priority. I don't care what it costs. They didn't do that. I'm like, this is going to happen, but they're, they're devastated. The greatest thing I've learned about suffering and other people is that all suffering is relative. All suffering is relative. What I mean by that is it doesn't do anybody any good for any of us to say, hey, well, you know what? People are dying in Africa right now. That doesn't help anybody. You know why? Because that is true, but what they're facing might be the worst thing they've ever faced in their life. That's why it's hard for me to remember when I encounter a college student and they're like, man, I got so much stress. Do you have a job? No. How are you paying for school? Well, I have a scholarship. So what, what's the stress you're talking about? Man, I've got homework. I've got a lot of homework. Had to cut back on my video games. And you're thinking, I'm looking for compassion. I mean, I'm really looking for it. I'm not finding anything. But you realize that it's all relative. It is the most overwhelming situation they have ever faced in their life. And all suffering is relative. So. When we enter into that with people, it changes our perspective. As adults, it has even more of an impact on people when we enter into their joy or their suffering because they don't really expect us to do that. We're good at sending cards or sharing some cheesy Christianese line. You know, whenever one door closes, another one opens. You know what we're not good at is just stopping and entering into a person's emotional weight, their joy or their pain. We're not good at being present in the moment with them. Enter into their joy, enter into their suffering first, and then act, then act. I know for myself, man, how often do I get it wrong 
And I want to dish out the advice before I've even contemplated the emotional weight of what they're going through. And then you end up sharing something that's hollow. You end up offending somebody or they see right through it and they're like, you're, just, you're sharing a meaningless platitude with me. You're not, you're not in this with me. Jesus was in it with him. So what does he do? How does he act out of compassion? Verse 14, it says, Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him, the dead son, stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Again, just, just imagine this. Just imagine the outpouring of tears and screams of joy and shock and disbelief at that moment when a son who was dead a moment ago is embracing his mother who was mourning a second ago and is now crying tears of joy. Would have been amazing to see. It's been pointed out that whenever Jesus raises someone from the dead, he's always very specific about the way he does it. When he calls Lazarus from the dead, he says, Lazarus, come forth. When he calls this guy, he says, young man, come forth. He's always specific. And we've shared this before. Most scholars believe the reason is there's so much power in the speech and the words of Jesus that if he's not specific, every dead person in the area is going to come out of their graves. And that would be really awkward. We're talking guys who've been dead for six years. That's awkward. You raise from the dead. Your clothes are all tattered. Your wife's married someone else. Somebody's living in your house. It's all very awkward. So Jesus is really specific about who he raises from the dead. And it's also worth noting that the theme of caring for widows is something that runs through the whole Old Testament runs through the whole New Testament as well. We see stories involving guys like Elijah in the Old Testament and Jesus here, even in the book of Acts. The care of widows within the church is a theme that runs through the whole Bible. It's part of the heart of God. That's where his heart is. And one last note on Jesus raising people from the dead. Jesus will raise a total of three people from the dead during his time here on the earth. Just something to realize. None of them will thank him. None of them will thank him. Because apparently wherever they were before he raised them from the dead was a lot better than where they got brought back to. The relatives thank him, the family thank him, but Lazarus doesn't go and say, hey, thanks for saving me from death. He's like, oh, here again. Because where they were is better than where they are now. Verse 16, it says, Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And the reason they mention a, a great prophet is because there was a precedent for this. And in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead. But Jesus was much more than that. They were willing to call him a great prophet, but not the Messiah, not the Son of God, not God in the flesh. And had Jesus claimed to simply be a great prophet, there wouldn't have been any problem with him. They wouldn't have killed him. They were ready for another great prophet. They killed him because he claimed to be more than that. He claimed to be the son of God, the Messiah in the flesh. We continue on in verse 17. It says, And this report about him, about Jesus, went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Then the disciples of John reported to him, 
to John concerning all these things. In case you forgot, John the Baptist only ministered for about a year before he was thrown in prison by King Herod, the ruling Roman leader of that part of Israel at the time. The prison John is thrown into is a desert fortress. He's in the dungeon of this fortress, which is high on a cliff above the Dead Sea. Why was John the Baptist thrown in prison? Well, he was a prophet. And here's what I can tell you about people who have a prophetic gifting. They're always very black and white. They believe there's justice, there's right and wrong. They're highly opinionated. They're highly judgmental. This is how prophets are. And John the Baptist happened to live in an area where King Herod, the ruling Roman, was kind of a corrupt guy. And John could not help himself from speaking the truth, even when it would have been greatly to his benefit to not do so. So what had happened? Well, King Herod had a brother named Philip. Philip married his niece, Herodias. This sounds like a story out of like Kentucky or something like that. These guys are the original like white trash rednecks, basically. So Philip marries his niece, Herodias. Herod goes to visit Philip at some point and takes her shining to Herodias. So he seduces Herodias, steals her, and she comes back to him with Israel. He marries his brother's wife, who was his brother's niece. John the Baptist is like, that's not okay. Am I the only one seeing this? This is, this is not okay. Herod is mad at him for saying that, so he throws him in prison. The Bible tells us he really wanted to kill John the Baptist, but John the Baptist was so revered by the Jews in the area that it probably would have stirred up a rebellion if he had executed him. So he just throws him in prison to get rid of him for a while. But John the Baptist still had disciples of his own who would come and visit him in prison and bring him reports of what was going on in the outside world. And so they come to John the Baptist telling him about what Jesus is doing, things like raising the dead. And then it says in verse 19, and John calling two of his disciples to him sent them to Jesus saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? He said, go ask Jesus this. And so what's going on here? We have John the Baptist, hero of the faith, who when he saw Jesus approaching, you might remember this, cried out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove. He baptized Jesus. He heard the voice from heaven. But what happened? Because when you step back, John the Baptist would seem to be the last person you would expect to find doubt in. The last person. So to understand the source of his doubts, we need to go back to his ministry. What was the characteristic theme of John the Baptist's ministry? His main message, it was repentance. He preached a message of repentance. His message was the Messiah is coming. He is God in the flesh. And free warning to you, you better get ready. If you've got junk in your life and you've not, you're not serving God, you need to get ready. You need to change because the king and his kingdom are coming and they're unstoppable. You need to get right with God. That was John the Baptist's message. He said things like, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's the message that the Holy Spirit had John the Baptist preach to get people ready for Jesus. So what do you think John the Baptist expected Jesus to do? How do you think he interpreted that message? The Holy Spirit was having John preach a message telling people, get your heart right, get your heart ready. John the Baptist, being a Jew, heard the message that he was preaching himself and assumed 
the Messiah is going to come in and he's just going to overpower everybody. The ruling Jews, the ruling Romans who are occupying us, everyone. He's going to set up his kingdom here on earth. He's going to take charge and make everything the way it should be. He's going to take out the trash. That's what Jesus is going to do. But as reports reach John the Baptist in prison via his own disciples, it becomes clear that that's not what Jesus is doing. He's preaching and he's teaching with power. He's doing great miracles, but he doesn't seem to be getting around to the big stuff. John the Baptist must have been thinking, if you're the Messiah, if you're God in the flesh, heaven come down to earth, then, then why am I here in prison? Why am I in chains? It's been months. Why am I still here? I, I mean, after all, Isaiah said that the Messiah would proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Could sure use a little of that right now. What, what's, what's going on? It's not unusual for even God's greatest leaders to have days and seasons of doubt. John the Baptist had doubts. Moses was ready to quit in Numbers 11. Elijah was ready to quit in 1 Kings 19. Paul knew the meaning of despair, 2 Corinthians 1. Jeremiah had so much despair, he was known as the weeping prophet, the last guy you would ever invite to a party. Have you ever had doubts? I think it's helpful to understand that doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. They're antithetical. They're very different. That's a big deal because in the church, we often treat them like they're the same thing. I have doubts. Well, shame on you. Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Unbelief, write this down, is saying I refuse to believe. I refuse to believe. Unbelief is a matter of the will. It's a refusal to believe that God is who he is and will do what he said he'd do. It's a matter of the will. Doubt is saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing and I don't understand why you're doing it. I don't understand what you're doing and I don't understand why you're doing it. Doubt is a matter of the mind. You see how you can still be rock solid in your belief but still have doubts that you're dealing with in your mind. Too often we treat doubt in a person as unbelief. Oswald Chambers said it so well. He said, doubt is not unbelief. Doubt may simply mean that they're thinking. It may simply mean that they're thinking. That's not a bad thing as long as it's not rooted in unbelief. John the Baptist believed in God. He served God. He was in prison because he loved God. He was righteous. But he looked at his own situation. He looked at what Jesus was doing and he said, I don't understand what you're doing. And I don't understand why you're doing it. I don't get it. You ever been there? John the Baptist has. Let's find out how Jesus responds to John the Baptist's doubt. Verse 20, when the men, John the Baptist's disciples, had come to him, Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Are you the Messiah or should we expect someone else to come after you? And then verse 21, underline those first four words. And that very hour, that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, many illnesses, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to the many blind, he gave sight. So Jesus doesn't respond directly to their question. I would imagine he probably says something like, just stick around a bit, watch what's happening, and then we'll talk a little bit later. Just stick around. 
And then Jesus lets them watch as he heals the sick and diseased, cast out demons, and gives sight to the blind. And then Jesus answers their question in verse 22. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he tags on the end. Make sure you tell John, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus' response to John the Baptist's question is profound because Jesus is sending John the Baptist a message in code. We're going to unpack it. The things he just mentioned, the list of things, he says, tell John that I'm doing this and this and this and this and this. That's not a random list of things. They are all references to the Old Testament, specifically the book of Isaiah, prophecies hundreds of years old that form a specific list of things that the Messiah would do. Isaiah prophesied the Messiah is going to do this, he's going to do this, this is how you're going to know it's him. And Jesus is telling John, hey, I'm doing everything that my word said the Messiah would do. I'm doing everything that's prophesied. John the Baptist was a rabbi. He knew the scriptures inside and out. So he would have understood exactly what Jesus was referring to. Prophecies like Isaiah 35.5 that read, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. There's other prophecies I put in your outline. You can look up those on your own time a little bit later. But, 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 there's something missing from that list that Jesus sends to John the Baptist, that list of Messiah activities, the Messiah's mandate. What's missing from the book of Isaiah? Jesus leaves one thing out. He leaves out Isaiah 61, 1. The Messiah will proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The one thing John the Baptist wants Jesus to most do, Jesus says, I'm not doing that in your situation, John. And that's the message that Jesus is sending John. And he doesn't tell him why. And then Jesus follows that up very intentionally. Tell John, blessed is he who's not offended because of me. The actual word is, blessed is he who isn't made to stumble because of me. He's saying, tell John, blessed is the one who doesn't fall into unbelief when it doesn't work out like they thought it would or like they thought it should. Blessed is that person when my plans are different to their plans and they still hold to the faith. We know from verse 18 that John had already been made aware of some of the incredible stuff that Jesus was doing. He had already heard reports that Jesus was raising the dead son of the widow and things like that. But like you and me, John was missing everything Jesus was doing because all he could focus on was what Jesus wasn't doing. The one thing on the list that he wasn't doing. The one thing he wanted Jesus to do most of all. And do you notice the contrast between the widow and John the Baptist? The widow doesn't do anything, but Jesus walks into her hopeless situation and brings life where there was death. John the Baptist is the most righteous man outside of Jesus Christ who has ever walked on the face of the earth. And when his interaction with Jesus ends, he's still in prison. Why is he in prison? Well, because he's suffering for someone else's sin. 
Herod's sin. He's not in prison because of anything he did. John the Baptist is in prison because John the Baptist lives in a fallen world that is controlled by Satan right now. That's why he's in prison. And John is saying the one thing that we many times say in the same situation when we feel the effects of the fallen world. We say, God, you should step in and intervene and change it and make it so that it's not a fallen world anymore. But it is a fallen world. And he doesn't always step in because this is not heaven yet. In those situations, you and I have a tendency to want to scream, that's not fair. That's not fair. John the Baptist is a good guy. He should, be, he should be let free from heaven. That's not fair. I don't know that we can demand fair treatment, fair treatment from God when the good news of the gospel is that we have not been treated fairly. That's the good news of the gospel. We did not get what we deserve. We were not treated fairly. Instead of getting what we deserve, we received grace and we received kindness and we received an eternity in heaven, in paradise, in the presence of God. Everything good about our faith is based on things that are unfair. Us not being treated fairly. Jesus doesn't always step in and end our suffering when living in a fallen world is the cause of it but he will always provide the strength and the comfort we need to get through it. Sometimes it's simply the strength and the grace and the comfort to finish our race well. Sometimes we don't overcome in this life. That's why Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. He says the victory that I'm promising you is greater than anything in this world. In those moments, in, in those moments of doubt, we have to hold on to what we know, that God is love, God is good. Don't get mad at the world when the world doesn't function like heaven. It is not heaven. We're not there yet. Instead, be thankful that this is not eternity. This is not the end. That Jesus intervened unfairly into our story and wrote a different final chapter for us. One that ends better than we could ever hope for or even imagine. And here's the amazing thing, that if you still wanna yell at God, it's not fair. He says, come on, I can take it. He'll listen. And when you're done yelling, the Holy Spirit will be your comforter as well as your counselor. John the Baptist was upset. Jesus told him that he wasn't going to get what he wanted this time around. Just like Paul never got rid of that thorn in his flesh that he asked God to take away. And here's where it gets really intense, at least to me. Just imagine the moment when John the Baptist's disciples show up back in his prison cell and John says, well, and they reply, Jesus was real specific about what he wanted us to tell you. The blind see... The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And, and those who are not offended because of him are being blessed. At that moment with his arms in chains, all those Old Testament prophecies would have come flooding into John the Baptist's mind and he would have immediately understood the message that Jesus was sending to him. Jesus was saying, John, Here's the evidence that I'm for real. I'm God and I'm good 
and I'm here. But John, you getting what you want is not part of the plan in this specific situation. Something bigger is going on. But here's enough proof. Here's enough reasons for you to know and remember, I'm in control. I'm in control. That's something bigger for John was his graduation from this life. John's ministry was over. In probably about a year and a half from this time, he would be martyred for Jesus and he would be going to heaven. And Jesus knew, John, your plan at this point is to end your ministry and you're going to be going to heaven really soon. That's what I'm doing here. And I imagine the wave of emotion that must have cascaded over John the Baptist as he's suddenly reminded that he is God and we are not. That God does not exist purely to meet our agenda, but he has graciously invited us into his. We've all had those moments where God just says, hey, just remember, I'm God and I'm, I'm doing something and that's all you need to know right now. And I imagine John just sort of dropping his head in the, those moments and just thinking, man, why did I doubt? Why did I doubt? And he probably just said something very simple like, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. Because sometimes that's all you can say in those situations. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why you're doing it. But I know you're still God and I know you're still good. Bless you. There's a reason Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Because sooner or later, a situation will come up in your life and in mine, and that situation will ask us, did you really mean it when you prayed that? Did you really mean it when you prayed for God's kingdom to come before yours, for his will to be done before yours? Did, did you really mean that? And do you still mean it when it gets difficult? And how many of you have realized that Jesus through the Holy Spirit still deals with our doubts the same way that he dealt with John's, with the same gentle grace and kindness. And when we find ourselves in the place where we want to scream, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you're doing it. When we're done yelling, the Holy Spirit, the best listener there is, comes to us and gently says things like, let's focus on what I'm still doing. Am I still with you? Have I ever left you? Have I failed to care and provide for you? Have I ever dropped anything you've placed in my hands? Have I ever failed to keep the promises that are in my word? Have I ever forgotten you? The fact that you and I are talking right now about this is the proof that I'm still with you. I'm still doing all of these things. I'm just not doing that one thing right now. It's not in my plans. And when the Holy Spirit is done with us, just as with John, you know, nothing has changed about our situation. It's not like we understand everything now. We're simply reminded that God is still good, and God is still true, and he's still in control. And we're reminded that knowing those things is enough. Sometimes he doesn't change the situation, he changes us. His grace really is sufficient for us. That's all we need. And in those moments, I usually find myself lowering my head ashamed that I doubted him again. And usually all I can muster is something like, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. He is so gracious with our doubt. He is so kind in our fear. He is so caring in our anxiety. But make no mistake, he desires to take us to a greater place of faith on the other side of that doubt. 
And by the way, everything John the Baptist was expecting, the, the literal, physical, political kingdom of God on the earth is going to come one day. It's what we call the millennial reign or the thousand-year reign when Jesus returns with his church for the second coming and establishes his kingdom on earth. But that wasn't what the kingdom was going to look like in John's lifetime. Verse 24, when the messengers of John had departed, he, Jesus, began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. So they've left. They can't hear what Jesus is saying. But he turns to the crowd and talks to them about John. And he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. So he's saying, when you went out to see John when he was preaching, what did you go to see? Someone just sharing the latest opinions, the latest trends, a reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go to see? A man clothed in soft garments? You go to see a guy in nice clothes? Did you go to see a celebrity? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you. And more than a prophet. He says, you went to see the messenger of God. And that was John, but he's much more than that. He says, verse 27, speaking of John, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. There were Old Testament prophecies about John the Baptist, about him specifically. Verse 28, for I say to you, among those born of woman, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And then this line is a doozy, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. A literal translation of what Jesus says is among those born of woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. So he's saying up to this point in time, hasn't been a greater human being that has lived than John the Baptist. He's the best, guys. Greater than Adam, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, all of them. It's John the Baptist. Isn't it interesting that Jesus waits until after John the Baptist's disciples have left before he praises John and brags on John? That's what he's doing. He's bragging on John paying him the biggest compliment any human being has ever been paid. That would look great on your resume, right? No one born to woman is greater than this man, Jesus Christ, on my resume. I'd love that. That would be awesome. Yeah, Jesus says, you know, I'm literally the best other than him. But he waits till John's disciples have left before he shares that. And and I think it's because that kind of compliment is like receiving a medal at the end of an event. As long as we're alive on this earth, we're still in the fight. We're still in the main event. Jesus tells us that our version of that medal ceremony is coming when it's all over. And it would soon be over for John the Baptist. He was going to hear everything Jesus said, but that wasn't the time for it. And for those who have loved and served Jesus, there will be rewards. And incredibly for us, the joy of hearing Jesus himself say, Well done, good and faithful servant. But if you notice in the Bible, it tells us that Jesus is saving those words for when we're done, for the end of the race, when the fight is over. But keep heart because that that moment is coming. It's coming for every believer. You may feel like a failure. You might feel overwhelmed by how far you have to go. You might think, man, I'm barely making progress. But, But listen, you have no idea what Jesus is saying about you just out of your shot right now. You have no idea that Jesus is in heaven right now telling the angels, hey, come look, come look. Do you remember where they were? Do you remember where they were? Look at them now. Look what they're doing. 
Hey, hey, you remember how scared they were about that? Look at them trusting me with that. You see what they're doing? You see how much they love me? You see how much they've grown? You have no idea how Jesus is bragging on you just out of your shot. But you're going to know one day. But those words are for when the fight is over. Those words are for the end of the race. And then Jesus says the most profound thing. He says, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, greater than John the Baptist. That's heavy. Jesus Christ himself says, we enjoy, every single one of us, a greater position in the kingdom than John the Baptist ever did. We have a better position right now in the kingdom than John the Baptist ever did. Write this down. John was a herald of the king, but you are a friend of the king. In other places, it describes John as a friend of the bridegroom, but it says we are the bride of the bridegroom. The bride of the bridegroom. It's amazing. As a person, none of us are greater than John the Baptist. None of us are that righteous. But in Christ, we're not only greater. Colossians tells us that we're perfect through Christ. We're made perfect through him. That's how Jesus sees us. He sees us in light of what his blood has done for us, how it has cleansed us and made us clean. You know, if that's all I had for you this morning, if I'm like, we're done. If that was the only point I had, we should be going ballistic after that. Be ready to worship and just go for it because of what Jesus has done for us. In Matthew's gospel, it gives us a few more details about what Jesus says. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. In Matthew's gospel, it says, And from the days of John the Baptist, Jesus keeps speaking, Until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. We're going to get to the violence line, but just an interesting reminder that Jesus even says all the prophets, the whole Old Testament era actually went up to John the Baptist. He's the dividing line between the Old Testament and the New, the Old Covenant and the New. Even though John the Baptist only appears in the New Testament, Jesus is saying John the Baptist's ministry was the end of the Old Testament. Jesus is the beginning of the New Testament. That first line can be translated two ways in the original Greek with equal accuracy. And this is what the verse reads. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Could mean that the kingdom of God has been attacked with violence from the time of John the Baptist because that's what was happening. John's in prison. He's going to be beheaded. When Jesus is born, Herod kills thousands of babies in his attempts to kill the Christ child. Violence and bloodshed follow the kingdom of God as God's people are persecuted and attacked by Satan all the way to this day. Or it could be saying that the kingdom of heaven is taken by men who are aggressively, enthusiastically, and passionately pressing into it and taking a hold of it. It could mean that the kingdom of heaven is not for those who say, you know, everything works out in the end. If it's meant to be, it'll be but rather it is taken by those who grab a hold of it with passion and zeal and prayer and act to obtain the kingdom of God. Both meanings could be true, and both are actually embodied in John the Baptist, a man who was passionate and zealous about God, but who suffered violence as well. Jesus continues in Matthew, and he says, And if you are willing to receive it, he, John the Baptist, 
is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All of the Jews were expecting that at some point before the Messiah arrived, Elijah would arrive again. And there was debate as to whether it would be a reincarnation of Elijah or whether it would be another prophet ministering in the same style, in the same vein, the same spirit as Elijah, someone with a similar anointing. The Jews believed this because before God stopped speaking to them for 400 years between Malachi in the Old Testament and Jesus and John the Baptist in the New Testament, he prophesied this in Malachi. He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Jesus just told the Jews, and he'll do it several more times in his ministry. He says, John the Baptist was that Elijah that I was speaking about in Malachi. They know that Elijah has to come before the Messiah. And that's why Jesus says, if you're willing to receive it, if you have ears to hear, he's saying, John the Baptist was that Elijah. By implication, he's saying, that means I am the Messiah. Yeah, if you're, if you're thinking that I can't be the Messiah because Elijah hasn't come back, John the Baptist was that Elijah, ministering in the same spirit, the same power. And he says, if you can understand, if you're open to hear what I'm saying, I am the Messiah. Back to Luke 7, we're almost done. Verse 29, it says, And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified. That just means they declared the righteousness of God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So these tax collectors who were considered scumbags by everybody had responded to John the Baptist's message of repentance. And in being baptized by John, they were publicly saying, We need to repent. We have something to repent for. We're not right with God. We need to get right with God. And their repentance had softened and opened their heart and prepared them to recognize Jesus. They understood that he was the Messiah and they blessed God for it. Verse 30, now the other side. But the Pharisees and lawyers, the experts in the law, rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Just a little side note for those of you that have fun doing research on your own about Calvinism and all those things. It's worth looking into the implications of that statement that they rejected the will of God for themselves because it implies a choice and it implies that God's will for them was not what they chose to do. Very interesting. But back to point, I'll try not to get sidetracked. The Pharisees and the religious experts didn't respond to John the Baptist's message of repentance because they said, that's a good message, John, but here's the thing. We don't have anything to repent for. We're 100% set. We're solid. We're good. Good people. Nothing to repent for here. Go talk to the tax collectors. What they did is they had a false view of themselves. They wouldn't repent. They wouldn't see their need for Jesus. And because of that, their hearts got hardened and they were unable to recognize Jesus when he was right in front of them speaking the truth. You know, today, the number one barrier, the number one thing that stops people coming to Jesus, especially where we live, is that exact same issue. I'm a good person. I don't have anything to repent for. If there is a God, he must think I'm pretty awesome because I'm a great person. I don't need saving. I don't need a savior. I've got it together. It'll all work out in the end. The number one barrier to people coming to Christ is that the first step to being a Christian is saying I'm screwed up in a way that I can't fix and I need help. That's step one to becoming a believer. It's pretty interesting. It's essentially the same (laughs) first step as AA or any other recovery program. I've got a problem. That's the first step, admitting the reality of the situation. The Pharisees wouldn't do it. The tax collectors would. 
tax collectors were saved and healed. The Pharisees, for the most part, were not. It's been well said, God doesn't send anybody to hell. People go to hell because they refuse to accept the provision God has made to avoid it. That's why people go to hell. Jesus continues to lament the hard-heartedness of most of the Jews. Verse 31, he says, And the Lord Jesus said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? He's looking for a metaphor. And then he says, They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. The idea is you don't want to dance, and you don't want to mourn. Nothing makes you happy. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, an excessive drinker, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The idea is John had abstained from everything. He lived an ascetic lifestyle. He didn't touch alcohol. He didn't touch his hair. He lived isolated from people, more righteous and more pure than anyone who has ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. And they said of him, he's got a demon. He's possessed. He's a crazy person. And Jesus says, I came. I came as a regular dude. I eat with people. I have a glass of wine. I talk. I laugh. You say I'm a glutton and a drunk. You're never happy. There's nothing I can do to satisfy you. So what's the lesson for us? Write this down. The lesson is those who don't want to receive the message will always find fault with the messenger. Those who don't want to receive the message will always find fault with the messenger. That's why the number one criticism of Christians is what? We're all hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. The right answer is yes, and there's always room for one more. We're all hypocrites. That's the slam. It always gets me a little bit worked up because I I just want to go back and say, do, do you not understand that in order to be a real Christian, your first step is admitting that you're not okay, that you're not good enough, that you need saving. That's the first step of being a real Christian. So if you have a person who feels like they're better than somebody else, you're missing the whole point of the gospel, the starting point of the gospel. But in reality, you know what I've found? 99.99% of people who say, I can't go to church. Everyone there is a hypocrite. The real issue is, is not the messenger. It's not the people. The real issue is the message. I have a problem with the message, so I'm always going to find fault with the messenger. And I just want to tell you, man, if you need a perfect messenger in order to receive the message, you best move on from here because you're not going to find it here. There's a reason why we study the Bible and I point to Jesus because hopefully you have greater ambition for your life than to be like me. That's why we point to Jesus. You need to aim higher. May we never fall into the trap of missing the truth because we cannot hear the message from the messenger may we never dismiss a message of truth because we have an issue with the messenger god spoke to a false prophet out of the mouth of a donkey and the message was true don't miss the message even if the messenger's a donkey that joke could have been funnier but i would have had to take a slightly sketchy word you know i, sh- I should have just done it and then i could have left it off the tape verse 35 And then he says a killer, killer last line. He says, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. What a great line. Jesus says, listen, if you want to really know, if you want the real evidence of who I am and what I'm doing, go look at what I do in the lives of people. Go look at the change that results in the life of people who follow me with their whole heart. Go look at them. 
and it will prove that I am for real. They are the evidence. You and I are to be the evidence that God is good and God is love. In conclusion, let me just tell you this. And Jesus is with you in your hurt. He is with you in seasons of disappointment. He is with you in seasons of depression. Not judgmentally looking down on you, belittling you, thinking, come on, get over it. He is in it with you, feeling it with you. He desires to be your counselor and he desires to be your comforter. That's one of the biggest reasons that he sent the Holy Spirit to be with you so that he could be that for you. But he doesn't want to just leave you in that place. He wants to anoint you with the oil of gladness as well. So don't leave here with the doubts. Take them to the counselor. Vent if you need to vent. Be mad at him if you need to be mad at him. He can take it. He's God. And he'll listen to every word you say and then he will meet you gently when you're done. He'll be the comforter to you. And then finally, I just want to ask, are, are you and I honestly praying your kingdom come, your will be done? Or do we pray that with a little asterisk that at the bottom says, as long as it lines up with my kingdom and my will? Is it your kingdom and your will? God, when I don't understand what you're doing and I don't understand why, I will say, bless the Lord. God is love and God is good. Romans 8.28 says, and we know, not we hope, we know, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work for good even for John, who would never be released from prison, who would be martyred for his faith. Yes, even for John. Even when my prayer doesn't get answered, yep, even then, it's for your good. It's for your good. And I promise for all eternity, you will be praising God for the fact that it was for your good. So let's honor God in the difficult times and in the difficult places where what he's doing doesn't line up with what we think he should be doing. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And the first thing we always want to do is give an opportunity to anyone who may be here today. If you're here in the room and you say, you know, I've never followed Jesus. I've never made that first step of saying, I need help. I need saving. I recognize that I can't live up to a standard of perfection on my own. And I need Jesus. I need to accept what he's done for me, what he's done in my place. Out of compassion for you, he came to the earth as a man. And out of compassion for you, he was punished in your place. Out of compassion for you, he was wounded in your place. Out of compassion for you, he was broken so that you could be made whole. And all we have to do is say, God, thank you for doing that in my place. If that's you and for today, for the first time, you say, I need that. I need you in my life, God. Then you give your life to Jesus here today and this time. You just say, God, come in and be my God. Be my Lord. For the rest of us, let's just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. I had a list of questions I wanted to ask right now, but I, I just sense that the Holy Spirit is laying on every heart the things that you need to hear from Him right now. The issues that you need to deal with with Him right now. And so I just want to encourage you to do business with God, whatever that looks like for you this morning. 
So let's just be still for a few minutes. Focus on the Lord. Focus on His Word. Focus on the promise. Romans 8.28, the last thing on your outline.